We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 29 in a moment, but there are a few other bits and pieces which have come in over the last week or so, and I think we should mention it. I've mentioned a man called Brian McLaren on many an occasion, and he is one of the foremost uh, promoters of the emerging church. He's written a book called A New Kind of Christianity. And in that book he has proposed a 12-step program to deprogram biblical fundamentalists from their old way of thinking. He says, even for those of us on this quest, breaking out of centuries-old habits won't be easy. No wonder those of us who want and need to change our approach may need to form 12-step groups to deprogram our thinking. He goes on to say, McLaren, this is a report I got in, McLaren is doubtless thinking of diehards who take the Bible seriously and interpret it literally and are opposed to his new Reformation agenda toward a church that is less rigid. McLaren has targeted the children and grandchildren of fundamentalists. In other books, McLaren likens fundamentalists to Pharisees. He says, the exclusive hell-orientated gospel is not the way forward. That's from a, a generous orthodoxy. He thinks salvation may be a process rather than a, an event. And says that the practice of accepting Jesus as their personal saviour is not getting the gospel right. He calls the literal imminent return of Christ pop evangelical eschatology. He says that we cannot prognosticate the eternal destinies of anyone else and that pagan religions are not the enemy of the gospel. He rejects the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the infallibility of the Bible and the eternal judgment of hell. These are the types of centuries-old habits, he calls them, that McLaren wants Christians to break out of through psychology and group therapy. But his emerging Christianity was prophesied in Scripture 2,000 years ago. And wise men will not be deceived, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. The various books that he's written, A Generous Orthodoxy, uh, The Emergent Mystique, and some other ones. I can give you this leaflet if you're really interested. Right. 
The other thing uh, I just wanted to comment on again is the fact that the Roman Catholic Church is still uh, in the throes of the abuse scandal. In remarks following Palm Sunday Mass, Archbishop Timothy Dolan of New York urged Catholics to express our love and solidarity for Pope Benedict, who, given the recent media onslaught over sexual abuse allegations, listen to this, is now suffering some of the same unjust accusations, shouts of the mob, and scourging at the pillar, as did Jesus. Is that incredible? This has been self-inflicted, all this abuse of the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Pope has been accused, and even in the Daily Telegraph yesterday, there's an article how the Pope resisted to unfrock a priest. The Pope resisted appeals to unfrock an American priest with a record of sexually molesting children citing concerns including the good of the universal church in a letter in 1985 bearing his signature and this chap he, he refused to have him defrocked despite the fact that the local diocese asked for him to be defrocked this man father Kiesel, he was eventually arrested and charged in 2002 with 13 counts of child molestation from the 1970s. And he was jailed for six years in 2004 for molesting a girl in his home in 1995. The, the church has agreed that the letter has been signed. The letter signed by the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was typed in Latin and is part of years of correspondence between the Diocese of Oakland California and the Vatican about the proposed unfrocking of Father uh, Stephen Keisel. In November 1985, the letter stated that Cardinal Ratzinger wrote that the arguments for removing Father Keisel were of grave significance, but added that such actions required very careful review and more time. He urged the bishop to provide Father Kessel with as much paternal care as possible while awaiting the, the, the decision. But the future Pope also noted that any decision to unfront Kessel must take into account the good of the Universal Church and the detriment that granting the dispensation can provoke within the community of Christ's faithful, particularly considering the young age of Father Kaisel. And at that stage he was 38 years old. And of course there's another group of people, 200 deaf children in a home were molested by a, a priest who was never defrocked by the Catholic Church. And Ratzinger was involved in that as well. So they have also said that the abuse the church is 
is getting at this stage is the equivalent of what happened to the Jewish nation at the Holocaust. Such unbelievable comparisons are just amazing. So, it's still going on, and it'll drag on for a long time yet. So, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we're going to read a few verses from this chapter. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto his servants and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs, and those great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes were not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. And when ye came unto this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us unto battle, and we smote them. And we took their land and gave it for an inheritance unto the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Keep therefore the words of this covenant, and do them, that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with them that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. And we'll stop there uh, at the moment. The chapter opens with the announcement from God that through Moses another covenant was to be made into which God would have his beloved people, the children of Israel, enter. This was besides the covenant made by God with them at Sinai, or as it says here, in Horeb. Under the terms of the 
old covenant, the covenant of law, they had failed in all respects. They had made a golden calf. They'd hankered after the, the gods and the lifestyle of Egypt. And in so doing, had relinquished all rights to the land. However, now in government, God is acting in government and exercised by God in mercy. They now were to enter the land under the terms of this Moab covenant. We know, of course, that Israel again failed and were banished from the land and have been scattered throughout the world under the judgment of God because of their failure to keep the covenants. But what was God saying to them through Moses as they were on the doorstep of, of this land? They were just about to enter. Sadly, we know that any occupation of the land was only going to be very temporary. They were expelled for the land, but not forever. In spite of all that men today may try and seek to do to usurp the ways of God, God will act in government and mercy toward Israel. There are no promises regarding the land in relation to the church. Our blessings are heavenly. We keep on saying this. We also know, of course, that we shall see later in this chapter that a time will come when all Israel will be saved. It's going to happen, despite what people are saying today. Let's look at a passage just in Hebrews 8. Wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with both houses of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. They shall not teach, they shall not teach every man his neighbour, for every man and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to the unrighteousness, to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. We must carefully guard against a system of interpretation that will apply passages such as this to the church. If we do 
it involves errors, an error as to the truth of God's word, an error as to the truth regarding the church, and an error as to the position and future of Israel. It's very important. I was reading a commentator on this passage the other day, and he said, It is our deep and thorough conviction that no one can understand, much less expound, the word of God who confounds Israel with the church. The two things are as distinct as heaven and earth. And hence, when God speaks of Israel, Jerusalem and Zion, if we presume to apply those names to the New Testament church, it can only issue in utter confusion. We believe it to be a simple impossibility to set forth the mischievous consequences of such a method of handling the word of God. It puts an end to all accuracy of interpretation and to all that holy precision and divine certainty which scripture is designed and fitted to impart. It mars the integrity of truth, damages the souls of God's people, and hinders their progress in divine life and spiritual intelligence. In short, we cannot too strongly urge upon everyone who reads these lines the absolute necessity of guarding against this fatally false system of handling Holy Scripture. We must beware of meddling with the scope of prophecy or the true application of the promises of God. We have no warrant whatsoever to interfere with the divinely appointed sphere of the covenants. The inspired apostle tells us distinctly in the ninth of Romans that they pertain to Israel. And if we attempt to alienate them from the Old Testament fathers and transfer them to the Church of God, the body of Christ, we may depend upon it. We are doing what Jehovah Elohim will never sanction. The Church forms no part of the ways of God with Israel and the earth. Her place, her portion, her privileges, her prospect are all heavenly. She is called into existence in this time of Christ's rejection to be associated with him where he is now hidden in the heavens and to share his glory in the coming day. If we fully grasp this grand and glorious truth, it will go far towards helping us to put things into their right places and to leave them there. So let's uh, just, that's an aside, let us never confuse the church with Israel. So we have this covenant being made with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. Moses goes on, he says, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. 
the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Despite all that they had seen, it's still they still couldn't see it through their spiritual eyes. What they had seen surely must have had a transforming effect on their innermost beings. All those wonderful miracles and the way they had come out of Egypt. But we read, To this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Their eyes were blinded. Another translation says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. They just couldn't see it through spiritual eyes, the great things that God had done. How sad. They had been delivered, they had been redeemed through wonderful miracles and through wonderful signs, and yet it says, God had not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. You know, we look around today and we see a similar, similar situation in, in many places, don't we? Faith based on signs and wonders. Just as it was in the days of Jesus Christ. We want to see things. But we have to live by faith. To see them with our spiritual eyes. That's what faith's all about. There were those who constantly sought for a sign from the Lord Jesus. There were those who followed because they saw his miracles. There were those who saw, who saw because they were part of some miraculous event. They followed him and saw the, the feeding of the 5,000. Things like that. But you know their innermost lives of those people who were looking for these signs had never been touched we see it today same way we see people who keep coming back again and again to be slain in the spirit to be zapped by some anointed one popular at that particular time but Jesus said when the true challenges of Jesus Christ are proclaimed Many may turn back. John 6, Jesus challenged the disciples to be fully committed to him in all aspects of their lives and to be fully filled by him. John 6 and verse 60, we read, therefore, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said, Does this offend you? And then we read in verse 66, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They wanted the excitement of the miracles. They wanted the excitement of the, the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted the excitement of going to a service and being slain in the spirit. They wanted, just like 
So many people. That's what they wanted. They wanted these vast healing services. Nicodemus also. He had to face up to this challenge. He came to Jesus realizing that he was a man who did these wonderful things. No man can do these miracles that thou doest unless God be with him. He liked the signs that Jesus was doing. He liked the miracles. And he came to know more about this man. He came realizing that this man was a prophet from God. But that was not enough. That is never enough. This intellectual had to realize that total commitment to this rabbi as a saviour was essential. To be born again into the family of God. Total commitment to leave the kingdom of darkness, to die to that life and be born into the family of God. A ruler once came to Jesus by night to ask him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer in words true and plain. Ye must be born again. Ye children of men, attend to the word so solemnly uttered by Jesus the Lord. And let not this message to you be in vain. Ye must be born again. I verily, verily say unto thee, ye must be born again. And we know that Nicodemus made that great decision. Oh, the fact that Jesus was a rabbi, the one who did miracles, was not enough. He had to make that decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he put that into action. He was not ashamed to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus and with Joseph of Arimathea place it in the tomb. Do you know Moses speaking to the people, he challenged them here. You've seen the wonders and what wonders they were. The great trials to which you've passed. You were part of it all. These have not affected your hearts. Deep down, you are blind to what God has done. We don't need signs and wonders. We have the word of God. I saw where the, 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 the shroud of Turin is, is going on public display some of these days. Hasn't been on public display for years. And they, they expect two million people to go. To bolster their faith. We don't need those things. We have the word of God. And the truth of God. We live by faith. In what God says. Then we go on to verses 5 and 6. I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not waxen old upon you. And thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. What amazing few verses those are. For 40 years they had been maintained by God in a totally alien and aggressive land. Totally. Totally. We've said it so many times, there was absolutely nothing in that land on which the people could depend. Nothing on which they could survive. 
they were totally dependent upon God to provide for everything. We should, we should look again at the comparison as to how we can survive as Christians in this world. This world has rejected Christ. It rejected him. It crucified him. And there's nothing in this world we have not to have friendship with this world. We live in it. We, we're dead to the world. That's how we should live. There's nothing here in this world upon which we can live spiritually. Nothing. They had no clothes other than those which God had miraculously maintained. Isn't that amazing? We are clothed in garments of salvation. Any clothes with which we have sought to cover ourselves by providing them with our own efforts are as filthy rags in God's sight. They won't last. You remember the story of Achan? The army was attacking Jericho. Everything in Jericho was accursed. A picture of the world. And not to be touched. But Achan. Must remember. Achan had a 40 year old suit on him. And he saw. A goodly Babylonian garment. And he yielded to the temptation. And he took it. He was not satisfied. With the garment which God had provided. Miraculously by God. And he paid dearly for not trusting God in all things. Their clothes had not worn out for 40 years. God had provided and has provided us with a wonderful garment of salvation. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Their shoes hadn't worn out. Despite the rocky ground on which they were walking. The sandy surfaces. God had provided that those shoes were miraculously maintained. God has provided us. And he wants us to put on the armour of God and part of the armour which he has is for our feet to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace part of the armour of God the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith breastplate of righteousness all those things but our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace then it goes on to say you haven't eaten bread. You have not eaten bread. Now what they're talking about. They had not eaten bread. Of their own making. Or. Of those of the people round about. 
they weren't filling themselves with what was around them in the world, feeding ourselves. They feasted on manna provided by God. God has provided you and me with all the spiritual food we need to survive on our journey through this wilderness world. Some of the Israelites hankered and yearned for the food of Egypt. Do we? They hankered for the garlic and the fruit. Oh, things were so much better back in Egypt. What they were saying to God was, you, you, you're not supplying us with the right food. It's a danger which we can all have. The food of the world is sweet, but it'll become bitter in our mouths and in our stomachs. No food made by man can satisfy our hearts. We sadly so often try the tastes of the world, but they are bitter and they're indigestible and they don't provide the nourishment we need as Christians going through this world. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. I sighed for rest and happiness, I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Saviour by, his love laid hold on me. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. E'en as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. The pleasures lost I sadly mourned, but never wept for thee, till grace the sightless eyes received thy loveliness to see. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. It says, Ye have not drunk wine or strong drink. Christ has given us that everlasting refreshing life-giving water he said to the woman at the well whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give and shall never thirst she said give me this water he has provided refreshment in the desert in the wilderness what does that little hymn say? I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. E'en as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. I'm 
feeding on the living bread and drinking at the fountain head and whoso drinketh Jesus said shall never never thirst again what never thirst again no never thirst again and whoso drinketh Jesus said shall never never thirst again make sure we're not drinking at the broken cisterns of the world You know, men in worship seek to introduce their own ideas into the worship of God. But a few years ago we did a study of the, the tabernacle and the thing that impressed me and on my mind most as, as we finished that study was that everything in the tabernacle was done and made as God had said. There was nothing of man's ideas, nothing in that design and the, the beauty and everything of the tabernacle it was all as God had planned nothing of man was permitted in that building and so as these people the children of Israel went through the wilderness there was nothing that man provided to give them nourishment to give them a refreshment, to give them the ability to, to go through that desert. Nothing of man. It was all of God. And that's the way we should go through this world. Only by the will of God. Live by faith and trust in the Son of God. And then in verses uh, 10 uh, to 12, the children of Israel are challenged to keep the covenant what does it say? Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day just the, the, the closing the, the few words there in verse 12 that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God these words enter into is can be also translated pass through pass through that ye, thou shouldest pass through the covenant with the Lord thy God. Perhaps here it is referring to the practice of cutting a covenant. Years ago I was listening to a politician speak and he, he spoke about the, the cutting a covenant with the trade unions. And I'm sure he didn't know what he was talking about. That that thought of cutting a covenant went back right to the time of Abraham. If you look at Genesis chapter 15, uh, just briefly. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7. God speaking to Abraham. He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit this backs up what we were saying at the start. 
the land belongs to the Jews. And he said, Lord God, this is Abraham speaking, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? God said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But he, the birds he divided not. And goes on to verse 16. This is how the covenant was made with people. But this was a covenant with God. The animals were divided. And there was a way between the two halves of the animals. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. God walked between those pieces, indicating that that covenant would be kept by him, that the land would belong to Abraham and to his seed after him. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Raphaeans and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gergesites and the Jebusites. We do not read of Abraham passing through that covenant. God knew that Israel would not keep that covenant. But God will keep that covenant that he has made with Abraham and his seed forever. What a wonderful thing too for us. When we read the promises of God in scripture, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. That God will keep his promises to you and to me in Jesus Christ we look further at this passage next week